Hey, what's up, everybody? It's your host, Galzong. And this is my show. And guess what? What? You just got invited to our bonus episode. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Join us, two out of shape friends, Galzong and my show, as we invite youth to speak their truths and break down social justice issues. We will discuss everything from race to mental wellness, politics, and singing out of key in the drive-thru lane. Hi, how can I help you? Can I get some social justice? So listen up and hear us out. Hey everyone, this is my show and Galzong. Welcome back to our podcast. If you guys haven't checked out our previous one which was on race slash racism featuring fred williams make sure you do and you can follow us on our social medias at mn on facebook and instagram and most importantly on soundcloud so that you can be in tune with our podcast on this episode of Hear Us Out, Gao Zong and Mai Shua sit down with national writer, speaker, and anti-racism educator Tim Wise following his keynote address at the 2018 St. Paul Public Schools Equity Summit. So, like Shino said, we run we run a podcast um, called Hear Us Out, and so our last episode was about net neutrality and. I guess our title was like uh, how the government got it messed up. And so this episode, we found that you would be a perfect fit because we were talking about racism and okay. race. Um, and that's kind of like what you do, you know, what that you is, talk about, your specialty. That is what I talk about, yes, indeed. That <laughs> so, is it. Yeah. Um, about to say, if you asked me about net neutrality, I'd be like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Google it? Like, I mean, I know a little something, but yeah, I, yeah. that wouldn't be my thing. So we all start out with a question of the day. So okay. we just ask you. question might be a little confusing, but it's called... Uh, where are you from from so what is your ethnic background <laughs> <laughs> well you know it is it, the reason i laugh is because it's never a question that i get for obvious yeah. reasons right as a white man right if i answer that question the easiest way is well i'm from nashville tennessee yeah everybody's satisfied with that everybody's yeah, yeah. like oh okay that's interesting now moving on you know whereas if somebody's asking you that question and yeah. you tell them you're from St. Paul or you're telling wherever you're from, be like, no, nah, really though, right? So, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I understand <laughs> the, the humor behind it, but it's also a real serious question. And what's interesting is, um, to me, you know, the answer, the, the where I'm really from, from. So my mom's side of the family are mostly Scottish and Irish and English. Uh, my dad's side are Irish, Scottish, and then my dad's dad's people are Russian Jews. Mm. And, and the reason that it's interesting to note that is part of becoming a white person um, in this country for European people was to put all that aside. So, mm -hmm. so that's why when you ask the question, where are you really from, from, yeah, like I think white folks have lost so much touch with where they're really from, from. Yeah. And that's really sad when you think about it. Now, you know, in order to get privileged, you gave that up essentially as a white person. So, I mean, I get it. The privilege tastes good and the advantages taste good. Yeah. But when you really think about it, to have lost that cultural attachment mm -hmm. is actually a real loss. Like that's that's painful. And, yeah. and the interesting thing is I think sometimes white people look at folks of color who still have that connection, mm -hmm. even if they get tired of having to answer the question, where are you from, from, like they still actually know. Yeah. And that is meaningful to them. And I think sometimes white folks look at that and we get a little bit, not jealous, but we get a little wistful for the fact that like, oh man, you know, you'll hear white people say like, I don't have culture. Yeah. Well, your people did have culture. So 
what happened and yeah. can we talk about that and, that's interesting because if yeah. white folks would think about it they might actually feel more affinity with people of color because people of color stuff got stolen from them mm -hmm. in many cases or they had to have their culture beaten out of them in order to assimilate and Europeans just sort of gave it up yeah you know and so it's an interesting question for that reason I think yeah no that's definitely like a different idea that I've never heard of yeah. and most time when we joke about this question we ask our white friends and stuff they'll be like oh no, I have European descent you know yeah. like somewhere in yeah. Europe like yeah. they're not totally sure um, yeah. So that's that's a really interesting idea, and I, I totally agree. I never really yeah. thought or seen it in that kind of light. Right. Um, but that's like definitely a new idea that I'm t I'm gonna take with yeah. me now. Yeah. 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 That was a very like great answer. Like oh, well, very in depth. Yeah. I I've really practiced like that. it a lot. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it really wasn't that impressive. But all right. <laughs> so um, many of um, many of you. Uh, us know you as like an activist or writer but for mm -hmm. those who don't know you can you like tell us more about what you do sure sure just more about yourself anything about sure yourself? so i mean i i would now not call myself an activist only because i feel like that's a really special title that mm -hmm. people only deserve when they're really like organizers and movement leaders and i'm not trying to be that I, I have done that work and i have great respect for it i have so much respect for it that when i realized i wasn't that good at it i backed away you know yeah. it's one of those things where the, the organizer jobs and activist jobs are so critical and that work is so critical that you need the best people doing that and i was okay but okay is not good enough so i decided yeah. you know I, I do what i do um and what i'm what I have skills around and that's really only two things in the world I'm, I'm a writer really and a speaker so I can so now instead of calling myself an activist even though it is a form of activism I would call myself a an anti-racism educator and really for the last 23 years um, that's what I've been doing traveling around the country speaking to you know student groups community groups nonprofits labor unions occasionally corporations government agencies whatnot school boards uh, like today training teachers, um, different folks around how to how to generate racial equity in their spaces, in their colleges, in their high schools, in their companies, whatever the case might be. Um, before that, I was, a, I was a community organizer and activist for about five years um, in New Orleans doing grassroots work. So I've done all of that uh, for, you know, for 28 years in some capacity. But now I would say writer, educator, um, educator without a without a permanent classroom so I'm like a teacher that doesn't actually have a permanent classroom because mm -hmm. I travel around and and speak to folks uh, about these issues of institutional racism okay before we start on our three uh big main questions that we have for you I just have like a personal question for you sure. what got you passionate about this kind of work and what you talk about and what well it's do? a long story which uh you don't have time to hear and and and, and I'm about out of energy to tell, but I will tell you the short version. The long version, for those who are interested in that, and and I mean, I guess it is an interesting story. Uh, I wrote a memoir called White Like Me that was my first book, and and that actually traces out the whole story of how how I came to understand what I understand and see the things that I see. And and mm. but the short version of it, just the thumbnail sketch, is um, you know, I had it was a combination of parental upbringing, the way I was raised by my mom, the not only the things that she taught me, but the things that she exposed me to. My dad too, but my mom more. Um, you know, they, I was in a preschool at a historically black college, Tennessee State University. So most of my early childhood friends, like preschool, pre-K mm -hmm. age friends were black kids. Most of the women that ran that program were black women. So that means that, you know, as one of the few white kids in this black space, I was not, I wasn't really being raised to think of myself as the norm in the same mm -hmm. way that probably most of my white peers were. And, and I was being raised in a non-dominant environment and I was being raised to trust black leadership and authority because they ran that program and it was their campus and it was their part of town, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that sort of 
gives you a sense over time of like you see things, you know, you see things because Definitely, your yeah. peers are like your, your close friends are these black kids and you get to first grade and second grade and you see them being treated differently or you see them being disciplined more harshly or you see them being, you know, tracked into the lower level classes. And because they're your friends, you actually have connection and relationship with them. Mm -hmm. So now you start to wonder what's going on. Why am I being separated from the people that I know and, and, and love and care about? Um, I didn't have the words for it at the age of five. It's not like I went home and was like, mom, you not believe the institutional white supremacy in my elementary school because I didn't have that language. <laughs> but I mean, in effect, in effect, that's what I was like. I was filing it away right in the back of my mind. And yeah. years later, I think that had a major impact because it just primed me to see things mm -hmm. that most white folks would never have been conditioned to see or it primed me to respect black authority. So when I'm 20 some odd years later, I'm working in public housing in New Orleans, mostly with black women. And if those black women say to me, hey, this is what's up, I'm not going to be the white guy that's like, you sure? Like, I think you might be hallucinating. Yeah. I don't think you really know what your life is like. Like, you know, I was learned to respect that authority. Mm -hmm. So I think that that helped me a lot. Um, there are a lot of other things, but that was sort of the foundational thing about, and then I had just amazing mentors, you know, mostly people of color in New Orleans um, when I was there who, who just, you know, helped to open my eyes and, and, and guide me. Um, so all of that. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So I think that kind of rolls into the first question, which is when did you realize the color of your skin played a big role in your life? Like, um, you know, I, I noticed it in, in, in dribs and drabs, you know, like, I don't think I really ever put it fully together mm -hmm. until I was in my twenties, early twenties, probably, but little pieces of it, you could see, like, I remember I played on a, a baseball team. Baseball was, was my sport. And I played on basketball and baseball teams. I was good at basketball until you had to be tall. And then once, yeah. <laughs> once, once you couldn't be short anymore, like about seventh grade, that was when I had to find something else. And I was already good at baseball, but all the teams I played on were mostly black teams. And yeah. Uh, there was this one time when I, we were about 11 and we went out to play outside of Nashville where I'm from uh, in this small rural area of Tennessee. And, you know, like the team, I can't remember now. I've blocked part of, blocked part of it out, but I don't know whether we played the game and this happened after or whether we just never even played it and it got called off. I feel like that's what happened, that the team like surrounded our car. Yeah. And was throwing stuff at the car and, and and calling the black kids all kinds of racial slurs. And I just remember that and thinking like that there was this line, right, that had been drawn. And and these white folks were mostly angry. It was interesting. As much as they were yelling at the black kids, they were actually yelling even more at me and a couple of the other white kids. It was almost like we had violated the norm we had been we had we had committed some kind of treason against yeah. our own group and that, that I think was the moment that I realized that like whiteness meant something yeah and I wasn't always sure on what it meant because I was surrounded by black peers and I wasn't really thinking in those terms mm -hmm. but I, but these people were trying to remind me like hey there's this team that you're supposed to be on right and it's not the team you're on and so you start wondering what's that about and then yeah. I had a teacher that same year fifth grade um who was really uh, upset by my closeness to these black kids. Yeah. And so she was failing me or giving me a D in a reading class. And my mom was like, what's going on? Because she knew I could read. That was mm -hmm. one of the few things that I was good at. If it had been math, she wouldn't have been surprised at all. But it was yeah. reading. And I've been reading since I was two and a half. So she goes up to talk to the teacher and find out what's up and, and why is, is he not doing his work? What do I need to work on with him? And she basically told her, look, any white parent that would send their white child to school uh, in this day and age, public school in this day and age, basically meaning with black kids in an yeah. integrated school, uh, isn't fit to be a parent or something like that. And, oh, and, and my up. mom just like lost her mind. Like she, and we got her, yeah. you know, she got her fired and everything within like three days she was fired. But 
but the thing that was interesting, and I, I remember being real happy that she was gone, and especially when I learned what had happened. Yeah. But what I didn't think about yet, and this goes to the part of why it took me, you know, just like it takes most people a, a minute to really realize what's happening, is it was only many years later that I realized even if that teacher was gone, like that school system was teaching the same lesson about who was superior and who mm. was inferior. Mm -hmm. They didn't need her there to teach it because they were putting all the white kids in the honors class and most all the black kids in the remedial class. And even when she left, that didn't change, you know? So I didn't see that for like another 10 years. Yeah. So I thought I was really hip and ahead of the game, but really, you know, it was maybe 10 years, 15 years later when I really put it together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel it the same for me. I didn't really realize until because I went to a more diverse school yeah. and everybody was kind of treated equally. It wasn't yeah. like the little things that they did for us specific like color kids were putting yeah. us in like um, ELL, like English learning classes like yeah. that. That really kind of when I stepped back from it, I was like, oh, it had to do with yeah. the color of my skin. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I guess now. What the big things is uh, white supremacy, you know, yeah. and I, you speak a lot about the politics and the white supremacy. So how can white people use their privilege to combat white supremacy? Well, it's hard because it's a it's inherently contradictory. Obviously, if you have privilege, um, there's a catch 22 when you try to take it on, because the irony is, you know, in the process of challenging it, you actually get privileged. I mean, in a way, you know, my voice gets amplified yeah. precisely because I am white. So the first, the first thing you have to do is you have to be humble enough to recognize that. And, yeah. you have to, and you have to acknowledge that using privilege to knock down privilege is never an easy thing because there's so much that tries to suck you back in to taking advantage of mm -hmm. the privilege. So you really need, I think, in order to do it, you have to be grounded in uh, a circle of friendship and relationship with people of color. I think it's very hard for white folks who want to use their privilege in a in an effective way to do so unless they are really either in grounded in community or grounded in a circle of friends and mentors of people of color who can give them feedback you know and 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 push back when yeah. we mess up um and people that we can check in with to see if our allyship is actually allyship you know i think sometimes people say they're allies but allies right. more of a verb than a noun or at least it should be yeah and and so you need people who can check you and i think that that's the important thing how you actually use it is you know you have to figure out different ways and, and it's going to be different depending on who you're trying to challenge mm -hmm. so if you're trying to challenge a family member or a close friend it might take a different tone than it would if you're trying to challenge uh, a politician or you're trying to challenge someone you don't really know very well um, yeah. at work or at school um because you have personal investment in that family member or that friend. So if you're challenging like a racist joke or a racist comment, you might take a much more um, sort of like calm approach because it's somebody you need to, you have a relationship with, you need to keep them in the conversation. When it's someone that you don't know at all, you know, you might be able to be a little bit more direct. Um, yeah. It just depends. I think there are a lot of st strategic questions that we have to ask, but, but for the most part, I think every white person needs to just think about what is their, what is their circle of influence? Mm -hmm. And if that's at a school or if that's in a company or if that's an agency in the government or whatever that is, what is my circle of influence? Who are the people that I have a potential to influence? How can I bring other people with me so that it's yeah. not just me I mean I think if a white person tries to do all that on their own um, it, it's very it's very 
difficult because you're, you're taking on an awful lot. You've got to you've got to have as many of those white folks as possible who say they're about something joining in that struggle. And you need to be connected to people of color, following their lead, mm -hmm. following their direction about like what strategies to use. Right. Because I think the danger is when you try to use your privilege for good and you're trying to figure it all out on your own without taking leadership from the people who were affected. The odds are you'll probably end up recreating their marginaliz yeah. marginalization. So um, you need to be grounded. You need to be humble and you need to 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 have a feedback loop of people who can who can, uh, you know, give you the kinds of information that maybe you wouldn't necessarily have. Yeah. And I think that's so important to, like, take, I guess, self-education yeah. and like put yourself out there. Yeah. And one of the things that we mentioned in the podcast was to put yourself in uh, get comfortable with the uncomfortable, you know. Yeah. So, like, get get yourself out there and like educate yourself on matters that you like want to take upon for yourself. Right. Right. Want to take them? Um, this is just um another personal question because you're very woke and that has gotten me really interested in like how you talk and such. Sure. But um um, what's a have you ever faced any disadvantages or like do, do you remember any like I mean. Well, you know, I'm I'm Jewish and I grew up in the South. So I guess like there were certainly times that I was mistreated um, being Jewish in a place like Nashville, Tennessee, because it's a very Christian place. It's a very fundamentalist Christian place. Um, so there were certainly times as a kid, you know, I'd have teachers tell me I was going to hell. Uh, they would just like stick their head in the door and be like, you know, you're going to hell, right? Oh, yeah, thanks. You told me last Wednesday. You know, I mean, literally that kind of stuff would happen. And uh and it was messed up, you know, when it did happen. Um, and there was a period in there when I was pretty bitter and angry about it. But 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 luckily, I think it, you know, again, was because I, I was around black kids a lot. I couldn't really equate what was being done to me as awful as it was to what they were experiencing. Like, I always mm -hmm. sort of knew, like, even when I felt like I was maybe getting, you know, crapped on a little bit as a Jewish kid, I still knew, like, at the end of the day, I'm still... I'm still in a far better position than any of my black friends yeah. because I'm still in the honors level classes. Like they might not like Jews spiritually and religiously, but they, but like they never were like, Oh, you're Jewish. So you're, so you're unintelligent because that's yeah. not the stereotype or mm -hmm. you're Jewish. So, so you're a criminal that that's not the stereotype, right? Yeah. I wasn't getting pro. I mean, I was getting religiously profiled, which sucks and, and it was wrong and it shouldn't happen, but you know, it's different than what happens today to Muslim folk. Muslim folk don't just get like told that they're, that they're script is wrong they get their mosque bombed right. now there were some clansmen that tried to bomb my temple in 1981 when i was 13 so i certainly know what that can be like i know i know what it is to be the target of anti-jewish bigotry but i also know and i have to be honest enough to acknowledge that there's also white privilege in it um and and if you don't know i'm jewish and i don't tell you that i'm jewish um you would never know and i can just right. pass through you know and 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 take advantage of my european ancestry even as I might catch hell, you know, if you knew what my religious faith was. So there were times that I experienced that. But I mean, really and truly, um, as awful as it was, it, it was really nothing compared to the systemic disadvantages that mm. my black friends were being exposed to. Yeah. Okay. So to kind of just kind of wrap things up, um, what advice would you give to young folks who are getting their toes into like activism and trying to voice themselves? Like what advice would you give? I think... Uh, the, the most important piece of advice, well, there are a couple of things. One is study the history of the struggles mm -hmm. for social justice and, and, and social change. I think sometimes we don't learn enough from 
those struggles that have gone before us and the people that have gone before us. And so we end up making some of the same mistakes that they made. Yeah. It's okay to make mistakes. That's the second piece of advice. It's okay to make mistakes, but make different mistakes than mm. the ones that were made before you. Cause we've all like, what I see in movement history is a lot of times the same arguments and the same things that end up destroying social movements do it every generation because because yeah. people aren't paying attention. So we're getting in the same stupid fights about, you know, who's got the most pure analysis or who's the most radical or who's really fighting the system versus who's a sellout and yeah. who's compromised versus and all this is nonsense. We need we need everybody who has a heart for for social change to do what they can. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and some people are going to be more militant than other people. And some people are going to be better inside the system than outside the system. But we need both. You, you can't you can't have everybody working from inside because that's too easy to get co-opted. You need to have people outside shouting. Right. But you can't have everybody outside shouting because then there's nobody inside to to sort of subvert from from, yeah. from the inside. you, know, you got to have both. And so a lot of this silly bickering that that we do uh, uh, within progressive movements is I think the result of not having a clear enough uh, sense of the history. Yeah. So study the history, be prepared to make mistakes, know that it's okay to make mistakes, but try to make different mistakes than the ones that, that we have made in the older generations. Mm. I like that. Um, do you, and then just lastly, do you have any actions to take like any, any like sites or any organizations that people can look into? Well, I mean, there are a lot of amazing organizations and certainly, um, you know, within your own area, though, whoever's listening and wherever you are, um, uh, you're going to know your, your local organizations better than I. But I mean, right now, you know, whether it's the movement for black lives, M4BL.org, or maybe it's .com. You have to look it up on Google, I guess. I forget. Um, the Black Youth Project 100. Um, you've got all these amazing groups doing stuff around police accountability. Yeah. Um, you have all these great organizations and people doing work on gun violence issues now. There are folks in every community doing housing discrimination work, anti-police brutality work, um, people that are doing education reform, but real progressive education reform. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think there there are no doubt as many organizations as there probably are people in a lot of in a lot of communities. And so trying to figure out which groups speak to you, which groups are because, you know, we're not all going to work on the same stuff. Like there are going to be some people who are going to focus on on education and others are going to work on criminal justice and others yeah. are going to work on health care and others are going to work on housing. And that's perfectly fine. We don't have to all do everything. Yeah. We just have to find an order. Like if our heart is in criminal justice reform, then we need to focus on that. Find the organizations in your area that do that. If your heart is, is in school reform, then, then do that. If you care about health care inequality, do that. You know. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think there's any one organization, but there are several uh, that are doing obviously, you know, incredible work uh, around the country on all kinds of issues from mm -hmm. immigration to uh, fighting, you know, uh, the repeal of DACA uh, to, you know, police brutality, all of those right. things. Yeah. Yeah. So just a huge thank you for joining us today. Oh, you bet. We thank seriously you appreciate me. it. Thank you. Um, you definitely gave me a lot of new knowledge that cool. I never yeah. even <laughs> realized. Well, thank you very much. So huge thanks to Tim Wise for joining us on this episode on race and racism. We took away a lot of different perspectives and ideas from him. Yes, um, the session with him was great. We had a lot of like new insights given to Wise and I thought it was just uh, very interesting overall. And make sure you guys are staying in touch with us so we can hear your guys' personal opinions and perspectives on topics like these that matters to you guys. That means stay tuned for our next podcast. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Harrisau MN. Thanks for hearing us out.